Good morning, all. My name is Carl Drake, and I am a member of this church. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. I want to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us here today on this Daylight Savings Day and online this morning. In 1870, UU, since 1870, UU Wausau has served as a vital voice of liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. We are currently worshiping both in person and online, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter and follow us on Facebook or Instagram for updates. One announcement which we have this morning. This month, our focus of support is the Wausau Free Clinic, currently located at the First Presbyterian Church on 3rd Ave. Founded in 2018, the medical clinic provides basic medical services completely free of charge to all those without insurance. The clinic operates on donations and grants and is staffed completely by volunteers. The clinic is open Thursday afternoons, provides care to those at the warming shelter on Wednesday evenings, and does free community COVID testing on Tuesdays with, that appoint uh, with an appointment. Excuse me. With that, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. You will find the words printed in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Please stand as you are able and join me in singing hymn 163.
Please join me in repeating our affirmation together. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge in freedom, human need, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other. And now our doxology. After springing forward and losing an hour of sleep, I may have some feelings. I want to share with you a story that I think answers Glenda's question about what is this church and what does it mean to be a member here. It's by Jessica York. Sometimes freedom is a long time coming. It can take generations upon generations for justice to be won. Our Unitarian ancestor, Reverend Theodore Parker, said, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one. From what I can see, I am sure it bends towards justice. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. often used this quote, and so did Barack Obama, our 44th president and the first black president. He added, though, but here's the thing. It does not bend on its own. It bends because each of us in our own ways puts our hand on the arc, and we bend it in the direction of justice. The hands of Unitarian Universalists have been bending the ark for many years. You may have heard of John Adams, Susan B. Anthony, Christopher Reeve, or Rachel Carson. But I'm wondering if you've ever heard of Francis, Francis Ellen Watkins Harper. Her hand was on the ark, too. Harper was born a free black woman in Baltimore, Maryland in 1825. She was raised in the household of her uncle, an educator, and African Methodist Episcopal minister. He was also an abolitionist, a person who was objected to the enslavement of blacks. Harper followed in her uncle's footsteps to become an educator and abolitionist. She had also become a writer, publishing her first book of poetry at 20, and then becoming the first, first black woman to publish a short story later in her life. Her writings often urged black people, women, and people in oppressed groups to take a firm stand for equality. In 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act was passed and became dangerous to be a free black in Maryland because slave owners could claim black people were runaway slaves and force them into slavery. So Harper moved further north to Ohio and then to Philadelphia. She taught and ran part of the Underground Railroad and lectured around the country to bend the arc towards justice for black people. In 1865, abolitionists celebrated success with the passage of the Emancipation Proclamation. It did not immediately create a world where black people were treated equally and fairly, but it did make slavery illegal. Harper saw that there was still work to be done. She put her hand towards women's civil rights, in particular the rights of black women and the right of all women to vote. She co-founded the National Association for Colored Women. Again, she toured and lectured on the topic of freedom. 
Her lectures and writings spoke to the need for women to be more than just wives and mothers. She understood what she was talking about. As a mother herself, after her husband Francis Harper died, she took her daughter on her lecture tours. During her justice work, Harper met many Unitarians also working to bend the ark. She felt at home with our liberal religious beliefs and knew that her work could strengthen the justice work of Unitarians. She joined hands with them in, uh, excuse me, by joining them at the First Unitarian Church in Philadelphia. She became a member in 1870. She frequently read her poetry from the pulpit, and yet she also kept her membership and taught Sunday school at the AME Church, too. She died in 1911 before the 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote in 1919. It was a cause she had worked hard to bring about, yet Harper understood that her labors might bring about freedom she would never enjoy. She said, Apparently failure may hold in its rough shell the germs of success that will blossom in time and bear fruit throughout eternity. Some of the fruits of Harper's labors and the labor of other Unitarian Universalists are still enjoyed by us today. Yet we are not done. Oppression still exists in our world. Harper's hands and Parker's and Adams and Antony's and Reeves and Carson's are no longer on the ark, but our hands are needed to take their place. So may the bending continue until its victory is won. And that is our story for today. Please join me in blessing our K through sixth graders off to their group this morning with May Peace Surround You. The words are printed in your order of service. The mission and ministry of UUWASA is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. Rather than pass a plate at this time, we've placed an offering basket in the back of the sanctuary for you to drop a gift in. You can also stop by our website, uuwasa.org, to make a one-time or recurring gift with your credit or debit card. Thank you so much for your support.
like to invite everyone to join me in a time of prayer and meditation. If you would, take both your feet and press them flat and firm on the ground. If it is your custom to pray or meditate with your eyes closed, I invite you to go ahead and close them. Before we journey into silence, let's take a moment and become aware of our bodies, aware of this space. On the top of your head, feel the air. Relax your jaw. Feel the weight on your shoulders, your heart in your chest, and take a breath deep into your stomach. Let us pray. Oh, holy life, now more than ever we hunger for steadfast love. We gather as people of faith, knowing that we have spoiled things in so many ways. It only takes us minutes to consume what has taken eons to create. The trees that carry news and advertisements to our door, the fuel that moves our cars, the ozone that protects us from the sun, the metals we turn to tanks and bullets. How easily we forget that we've been called to be stewards of creation. How easy it can be to think that we are so small and insignificant that there is nothing we can do to change the way our culture treats the health of our world and all that's in it. Holy mystery. God beyond names and God beyond namings. You give us every reason to learn how to live as stewards caring for the richness of reality. Help us listen. Help us hear. Help us learn to care for what you've made. Help us answer the call you sound to care for this fragile earthen vessel that we call home. Dear friends, I invite you to call into mind all the joys and sorrows in your lives. And let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please stay seated for our prayer hymn number 168. One more step.
So this morning's a little bit different. I'm doing something I haven't done, I think, in a couple of years, which is to preach a, a sermon by a former minister, which I call a throwback sermon. This morning we'll hear from the Reverend Glenda Walker. Uh, on Twitter, you know how everybody says retweets do not equal endorsement. By reading Glenda's sermon, I'm not equaling endorsement. I think it's a solid sermon, but I just want to add that caveat. I wrote an introduction rather than use a traditional reading. I actually went into the archives and found the order of service from the Sunday on that May 15th, and I found that Glenda didn't really have a reading uh, for that Sunday morning. So I thought I would use this spot to introduce the sermon you're about to hear. So what I do believe is this. I believe that it is vital that we listen to the voices of this church's ancestors. When you lift up the voice of a former minister, ideally, what you're doing is you are tapping into the hearts and the hopes of the former congregation that led us to the best that our church is today. Now, I use the word ideally intentionally because it is a minister's responsibility to listen to his or her congregation and to preach with their congregation in mind at all times. A local parish minister preaches to a particular people with unique hopes and unique concerns. Churches mourn, they celebrate, they worship together, or at least they should. If a minister does their job right, then what they are saying from the pulpit won't always make you happy. You see, I'm not a tinker toy. Glinda wasn't a tinker toy with a little wind-up thing in our back that we're meant to just march around and entertain you. In fact, most churches like to say that they are open to being challenged and open to being changed. And then ministers show up and they say, my job is to show up and to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. But what you often find behind churches is that whenever you pull the curtain back and you look behind the scene, what churches say on paper is kind of the opposite of what they actually do in practice. Many churches like to just stay the same. They like to just hear what they want to hear. And maybe you, you also is like that, or maybe it's not. That's up to you. The Reverend Glenda Walker, who served this church as minister from 1990 until the year 2000, in my opinion, Glenda didn't pacify this congregation. In her own way, within a unique era, Glenda challenged and pushed by preaching and pastoring with integrity. Glenda, for those of you who don't know, she was a second career minister. After she graduated from Harvard Divinity School at 56 years old, Glenda went on from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and she interned at All Souls Unitarian Church, the largest Unitarian church in the nation, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, before she accepted the call to serve this church as minister starting in 1990. And when Glenda retired in 2000, this congregation, they honored her with the title Minister Emerita, making her only the second minister in this church's 152 years to receive that title, aside from Brainerd Gibbons. Glinda wasn't just a preacher. She was also a pastor. And so over the course of her ministry, she developed many meaningful relationships. Several of Glinda's friends are still here today. Any of you remember Glinda as a pastor? Raise your hand. There you have it. Lots of her friends are sitting in this congregation still. Many of Glinda's friends are gone however, in one way or another. 
As a colleague, Glinda was very kind. She was very much a scholarly intellectual. I describe Glinda in the newspaper as a true Unitarian intellectual, truly and really. She served this community in numerous roles for which she won several awards and was profiled by the Daily Herald whenever she died, which celebrated her civic and ethical contributions to Wausau, which was a community that she adored and she called home for the last 30 years of her life. In terms of theology and temperament, Glenda and I are very different. But where we align is in our understanding of the necessity of freedom in our churches. Every now and then, our churches struggle with this commitment. This church struggles with this commitment, which is why I chose this sermon of Glenda's in particular. To remind us that we need not think alike to love alike. And to remind us to ask ourselves as if our life depends on it, this question. Why do we exist? If you listen closely, you will hear what I think is one of Glinda's answers to this question. Also in this sermon, Glinda brings up a few old controversies. She mentions two former ministers, both of whom were as theologically influential as they were controversial. And they left this church to serve as the last two presidents of the Universalist Church of America before the merger with the American Unitarian Association. She also mentions a former minister of this church who walked alongside the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and Selma. She mentions divisions amongst this membership during the Cold War era when this church, from the opinion of many in the congregation, when this church took an overly partisan stance on what a lot of people thought of was a flash-in-the-pan political issue. Now, these specific issues that Glinda lifts up, what they do is they get at a general and reoccurring themes that we often face in our churches. I'm going to tell you what I think those general themes are. Number one, that our faith isn't static, that worshiping together is absolutely vital, that congregants and ministers make mistakes, that congregants and ministers take risks, that congregants that the church isn't a place for partisan politics. So let these examples and Glinda's study of them serve as a reminder that churches, like people, they change. People fight and people disagree. But if we are doing church right, we are always coming back together. The point which Glinda makes well is that we call ourselves back to one another in the name of love, in the name of fellowship and freedom. But perhaps most importantly, what you'll hear Glenda tell you is how the faith we practice shapes and saves people. Let me repeat that. The faith we practice saves people. At a time when mainline churches, especially liberal ones like ours, are in extraordinary decline, I believe that it's wise to listen to the voices from our past. Notice that I didn't say we need to recreate our past. Our ancestors' words remind us of where we came from and who we've historically claimed to be. But they also help us not make the mistake of thinking our past was something it wasn't. This sermon of Glinda's captures some of her thoughts on what makes our religious movement, and this church in particular, special. Sometimes to know where we need to go we need to be reminded from where we came.
There it ends the reading. The words of the Reverend Glenda Walker. George Crabb writes, quote, What is our church? Our honest sexton tells, Tis a tall building with a tower and bells. For St. Augustine, the church is the place outside of which there is no salvation. For Robert Burns, the church is built to please the priest. For Sonia Johnson, the Mormon feminist, quote, the church belongs to its hierarchy, which is men in power. Those outside the hierarchy, and especially women, are at best only renters and at worst squatters in religious territory. End quote. 
Harper Lee, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, says in the church she was, quote, confronted with the impurity of women doctrine that seemed to preoccupy all clergymen, end quote. The suffragette Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the church, along with the Bible, was the greatest stumbling block in the way of women's emancipation. And Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was unimpressed by the sermons of his minister, wrote, quote, I like the silent church before the service begins better than any preaching, end quote. Alexander Pope declared that, quote, some church repair not for the doctrine, but for the music there, end quote. The church is many things to many people. Forrester Church, minister of All Souls Unitarian Church in New York City, he suggests that religion is our human response to the dual reality of being alive and having to die. I think Forrester would agree with me when I suggest that the church is our institutional response to being alive and having to die. In talking about this church this morning, the Unitarian Universalist Church, I'd like to start with some history. Unitarianism began formally in Transylvania during the Reformation. Yes, Transylvania, the harbinger of Count Dracula. Though it began formally in Transylvania, Unitarian thought preceded Christianity. In Judaism, God was one. Trinitarian thought arose in Christianity with the idea that Jesus was the incarnation of God. That belief was a matter of public debate for nearly 300 years. The Emperor Constantine, tired of factionalism, wanted the debate settled. And in the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, the debate was settled in favor of Jesus as the incarnation of God in human form. Unitarians didn't buy it. And Unitarian thought and practice was forced underground. Unitarians were denied religious freedom. They were persecuted and even burned at the stake. Only one rebellion in Catholicism resulted in the establishment of the Protestant Church did Unitarianism come out of the closet, so to speak, and get formally organized. With the help of the royal family of Transylvania, King John Sigismund and his mother, as well as the royal physician Francis David, Unitarianism adopted its name and became organized. Now this was an uphill battle, but in Transylvania, thanks to King John and his mother, Unitarians, as well as Trinitarians, were granted religious freedom. Unitarians, because they suffered persecution and understood what it was like, refused to retaliate against the Trinitarians because they suffered persecution for their beliefs. Unitarians focused on religious freedom as well as the unity of God. Religious freedom continues to ground our movement and focus our mission today. Universalism developed as a reaction to Calvinism, although universalist thinking preceded Calvin. Calvin, in his politically brilliant but theologically tortured mind, advanced a theology that made of God a punitive, judgmental father. One wonders what Calvin's father was like. Calvin believed that some of us, even before we were born, were, quote, elected by God to be saved at death and sent to heaven to be with Jesus. All the rest of us were elected to hell. I really wonder what Calvin's father was like and whether some of his children suffered hell on earth 
and some enjoyed heaven. Universalism as a denomination arose in reaction to Calvin's doctrine. Universalists couldn't find Calvin's doctrine of election in the teachings of Jesus. Jesus didn't teach a punitive, judgmental God. That was more of a Hebrew version of God. Yet even though the Hebrew God was judgmental and punitive, God was forgiving. One didn't find him consigning his people to eternal hell just to tribulation on earth. Universalists, therefore, opted for a vision of God that was good and loving. They insisted God was too good to damn any human being to eternal hell. Calvin's doctrine of election was heresy to the Universalists. Eventually, Universalists and Unitarians got together. In this country, they evolved separately to much the same position with emphasis on religious freedom, the unity of God, and the necessity of love. After years of cooperation between Unitarians and Universalist women on Sunday school materials and social projects, after a number of years of dialogue that focused on the beliefs Unitarians and Universalists held in common, after working out all the structural details, Unitarians and Universalists finally joined to form one association in 1961. Over time, Unitarianism and Universalism also evolved from being Christian denominations to being one association of churches, societies, and fellowships that expressed diverse theologies and philosophies. How did that happen? In the mid-1800s, Harvard, where young men were educated for Unitarian ministry, they established the first chair in comparative religions in this country. The chair was filled by a Hindu. At the same time Universalists were establishing academic institutions, young people were being exposed to the literature of religions and philosophies other than Christianity. And they found much value in the sacred scriptures of other religions and philosophies. And eventually those scriptures and even the scripture of science entered Unitarian and Universalist churches. And we were forever changed. We essentially adopted the central tenet of that first Hindu, the central tenet of the Vedanta philosophy, quote, one truth, many paths. We are now an institution that affirms and promotes many paths in the search for truth, and we take great interest in those paths, be they Christian, Islamic, Jewish, Hindu, humanist, Buddhist, or pagan. And while we do not necessarily agree on the words chosen to represent ultimate reality, we are philosophically in accord on the freedom to express differing visions of ultimate reality. We are in accord on the necessity to respect one another's expressions as well. Our practice sometimes fails to live up to our ideals. So therefore, in this church, and the institution of Unitarian Universalism, our theologies and philosophies are diverse, and sometimes they are in conflict. We are dogmatic only when we neglect to keep in mind that truth is grander than we think it is at any given moment. We are dogmatic only when we fail to keep in mind the limits of our knowledge. And we are dogmatic only when we fail to exhibit generosity of spirit and an openness of mind. But we all do this at times. I do. That's our history. Now I'd like to witness to the principles that ground our faith, for I have a passion for this institution, 
and the love, freedom, and unity it espouses, however imperfectly they are lived out by this institution and the individuals in it. My witness is personal. We lived in Billings, Montana, and one Saturday my husband, Richard, looked up from the newspaper and said, Look at this ad, Glinda. I thought we ought to check it out. I don't remember exactly what the ad said. It was one of those ads that said something like, if you like what Jesus taught but can't believe in virgin birth, you may be a Unitarian without knowing it. Now that was different. Richard, he grew up unchurched, but I grew up a Methodist, and though Richard had initially attended the Methodist church with me, we hadn't gone to church in years. It was more rewarding for us, a working couple, to spend Sunday mornings companionably—I can't say that word—companionably reading the paper. The ad gave the time and place where the Unitarian Fellowship was meeting. We went to the fellowship. Their speaker that morning was a minister from either the Disciples of Christ or the United Church of Christ. I can't remember which. But he was obviously a liberal Christian because at the end of the presentation, when asked for his definition of Christian, he answered, quote, someone who follows the teachings of Jesus. The ensuing discussion was lively. The people in the group, they challenged that minister. To be a Christian, do you have to believe in virgin birth? Do you have to believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ? Do you have to believe Jesus was God? That minister's answer was no to every single one of those questions, and no one looked horrified. No one, including that minister, seemed to be offended at all. And I was amazed. This was a different world. The next week, we were asked by Richard's company, he worked for Exxon, if we wanted to move to Spain. We did want to, and we did go. And in Barcelona, we looked for a Unitarian group, but there wasn't one. And we didn't encounter Unitarianism again until we transferred back to the States to New Orleans. One of the first things we did was attend the Unitarian Church. The church there was like many of our churches. A couple of people made us feel welcome. The others stood back and let us include ourselves, which is what we did. And I'll never forget it. One day, we had a parsonage painting party. We arrived at the parsonage to find a paint-spattered minister, a paintbrush in one hand, a can of beer in the other, surrounded by the early arrivers, proudly telling them that his daughter had been arrested the day before and was now in jail. I was amazed. This was a different world. A beer-drinking minister, one who was proud that his daughter was arrested. She was arrested because she had participated in a civil rights demonstration in the town where she went to college, and of course her father was proud of her. But I was quite sure that had I done the same at her age, my father's reaction would have been quite different. A year later, a change in Richard's career led us, now with our first child, to Hibbing, Minnesota. We found a Unitarian fellowship there, which we joined right away. It met in the basement of the YMCA. There were just a handful of us sitting around a folding table every Sunday evening. On perhaps the second Sunday we attended, in the middle of the discussion, a college professor sitting next to me in the middle of the discussion turned to me and asked, what do you think, Glinda? And I was amazed. 
This was a different world. A college professor was asking me, a woman and a homemaker without even a bachelor's degree, my opinion on a crucial social issue. I didn't have an opinion. I wasn't used to being expected to have an opinion. I'd been brought up a small-town female of humble parentage to be a secretary and a wife and a mother, and secretaries and wives and mothers didn't concern themselves with world affairs and social issues and theology and philosophy and the like, except, of course, for my Aunt Eve. Can you see in those early vignettes why I am passionate about this church? For me, this church is amazing. It's a different world from the one I grew up in. In this church, there is freedom. It isn't just the freedom to ask questions that challenge the religious establishment. It isn't just freedom to believe anything you want to because, in fact, you cannot believe anything you want to be and do and be a part of this church. The freedom in this church is the freedom to be the best you you can be. But it's not just the freedom to be the best you can be. It's also the responsibility to be the best you can be and the expectation that you will not want to be anything else. And that freedom and that responsibility and that expectation is not restricted simply to the white race. It is extended to all categories of people, to women, to all races, to individuals of all sexual orientations, to people of all abilities and disabilities. And it has taken a lot of work for this church to arrive at that freedom, and we are still working on it. And it's radical freedom, and it's radical love, and it's radically unitary, and it's radically universal. A member of the congregation said she would like to hear more about my concept of love. And this seems like a good time to talk about my concept of love, which I believe is universal love and embodied not only in individuals, but in this institution as well. Most of us, when we think of love, in my opinion, we think of romance or dependency. Love is potential in romance and dependency, but where romance and dependency exist, love in its highest form doesn't exist, for romance generally feeds on illusion, and dependency rarely allows freedom. That's my perspective. Love is when I want the best for someone else. Not the best as I define it, but the best as someone else defines it. Love means not insisting that someone be and do what I think they should be and do. It means giving that person the freedom to determine his or her own destiny, his or her own character, own beliefs, own activities, regardless of how that affects me. It means helping that person to be something other than what I want him or her to be. It means not holding on to that person. It means giving him or her up with grace if it becomes necessary. It means helping him or her to leave me if that's what he or she needs to do. Human love at its best is like God. It's like the universe. It's a reflection of God. It's a reflection of the universe. We are created, sustained, redeemed, and we are released by God and the universe. And human love at its finest, it reflects that. Human love at its finest works to create, sustain, redeem, and release that loved one. 
And that's what this church does. It does so with the understanding that we are diverse expressions of one unity. It does so with the understanding that love and freedom cannot be separated. Love embodied in this institution and its people encouraged me to think more. It encouraged me to consider myself equal and express myself as equal, to seek fulfillment, and it opened me up. Love embodied in this institution and its people encouraged me to help you do the same. Now, I do it imperfectly, of course, and so does this church. But you can tell me, or but you can tell, can't you, that I am a convert. We converts tend to be radical when it comes to our beliefs and our institutions. We converts don't take the church for granted, for like St. Augustine, we have found salvation only in the church. If we take our church for granted, what we do is we end up opening our church up to the possibility of its demise. If we come here simply to be with friends, if we come here simply to give our children a liberal religious education, if we come here simply to find solace when life gets tough, if we come here simply because we like the preaching of one particular minister, we have failed to understand the function and the necessity of the church, for the church is the institutional advocate and embodiment of the universal love and freedom within the framework of unity. Love and freedom are the most appropriate responses to the dual reality of being alive and having to die. And so, welcome to your church, the church of love and freedom. We hope that you are as interested and integrated into the life of this church. We hope that you will learn to share our history, that you will learn, for example, that it is at its inception, our church with an Episcopal banker, we signed a charter to come together. You will learn that two of the ministers of this congregation went on to be the leaders of the Universalist Church of America. You will hear stories of the logos, the Christmas pageant, and all of the wonderful Wausau people who looked forward to it every year. You will learn that there are bats who do indeed live in the belfry of this church. We paid $12,000 to get rid of those bats, by the way, but anyways, that's another sermon. They live in our belfry, and on rare occasion, they have descended to disrupt the logos and the board of trustees meetings, and in my office, strangely enough, they never descend during our Halloween party, though. You will hear about past divisions in this congregation. When the ministers of this church, particularly the Reverend Joseph Nirad, went to Selma to march, when members of this church took a position on nuclear-free zones and the Herald misidentified it as the church position, you may hear about current divisions in the congregations over the church school and how we're restructuring the program. Love and freedom and unity do not preclude differences and division and conflict. At times, we are not like, or at times, we are not unlike Calvin and Hobbes. I hope you're familiar with Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin's a little boy, puny of body, giant of imagination, with a toy tiger who becomes real and functions as Calvin's alter ego. Calvin and Hobbes are in Calvin's treehouse. Calvin, looking like a sea captain with a folded newspaper hat on his head, begins... Quote, 
This meeting of the top secret club, G-R-O-S-S, Get Rid of Slimy Girls, will come to order. Today, this August assembly will decide whether to demote President Hobbs on charges of heresy. Taken by surprise, Hobbs exclaims, Heresy! Calvin continues, Let the records show that the defendant made an undisparaging comment about the possible membership of Susie Durkins, an admitted girl, an enemy of this club. Calvin responds, Let the record also show that the supreme dictator for life, Calvin, is an income poop. Calvin retaliates. Okay, just for that, you're charged with insubordination. This court finds you guilty on both counts and strips you of your title. Well, all all those of you who read Calvin and Hobbes might have guessed the verbal battle continues and becomes a physical battle until battered on the floor of the treehouse, Calvin and Hobbes look one another in the eye and they call a truce. In the last frame of the cartoon, rumpled but happy, together they survey the territory below. And with obvious satisfaction, Calvin says, what a great club. Too bad we don't have more members. (laughs) Hobbes responds, maybe we should allow Susie to join. In this church and in the Unitarian Universalist Association, we have argued about who is equal and who is admitted. We have argued about what the rules are, about who should and should not be in charge. But at some point, when we are down on the floor scraping, we look into one another's eyes and understand that what's uni- what unites us is stronger than what divides us, and we call a truce. And our ability to call and maintain truce and transcend differences, disheveled, battered, rumpled, but happy, we congratulate ourselves on what a great church we have, and we commiserate with one another on the fact that we didn't have more members. Relatively few of us human beings are able to not only withstand, but to actually enjoy the challenges, the tensions, the polarities, the ambiguities of life and its changes. Those of us who do are here or have not yet heard of this church where people embrace and enjoy challenge and tension and polarity and ambiguity. Charles Kuralt, in conversation with Morley Safer, said he is optimistic about the future because liberalism keeps the pot bubbling and people shouting at one another. If you come from Kuralt's perspective, and I do, this church is a good place to be, and so is Wausau. And so welcome to your church, a tall building with tower and baths, a place of emancipation where there is no impurity of women doctrine preoccupying clergymen, where men and women share power in both on the territory where silence is rare, and there is always music, a place imperfect as it may be, without which there may be no salvation. Amen. Let us rise now in spirit or body for our closing hymn number 162, Gonna Lay Down My Sword and Shield.
came here with someone this morning, I invite you to take their hand. If you came here alone, I invite you to reach out with your heart. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear, may it lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Please relax, have a seat, and enjoy the postlude. See you in a moment.